So this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series in Luke. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Now, as a forewarning, we are going to be going through a lot of Scripture today. So if you notice in your bulletin, I went ahead and put all the reference in there for you guys to go through and read through later. Uh, I'm sure whenever you see me up here getting ready to preach, you're like, all right, I need to get my sword drill fingers ready. He is going to go through some stuff. And so we're going to go through a lot of text today. Because the reason we're going to go through a lot of text today is because I want you to be able to walk away from here absolutely sure of the two topics that we're going to discuss today. And as you can see upon the screen, there are going to be two topics that are very controversial controversial in Christendom. You're going to see that today. And I pray the Lord will use His Word to reveal to us the reality and the truth behind these two topics. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the fire of God. So let's read together in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. That doesn't mean you have to read aloud if you don't want to. But you can if you want. Starting in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now, as you can tell right out of the get-go, we're continuing on from what Pastor Blake preached last week regarding baptism. And he did a wonderful job presenting this necessity of baptism, its purpose, and its function. What does it mean to bear fruit in repentance? The reason that Baptists do what we do is we come and we call to people saying, bear fruit, uh, uh, bear fruit in, with repentance, to come and be baptized. If you receive Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior that you are confessionally repentant of your sins and you receive the good news of the gospel and you are repentant that He has forgiven you, we ask that you bear fruit with that and declare to all who are here that I am a brother and sister in Christ. I am a sheep who has been forgiven. I am the sheep in the sheepfold. And we receive you with rejoicing. That's why we cheer after a baptism. We rejoice because another who has been found dead has been made alive in Christ, and we get to rejoice with that. So Pastor Blake did a wonderful job on going through the necessity and purpose and function of baptism. Being that uh, the name Baptist is on our our, sign outside and on our church, we, we, we take baptism very seriously. And so we like Baptists. And so the reality is, though, that Luke here writes about what John says. John says that his particular baptism is not nearly as, as, as functional and effectual as the one coming after him. I simply baptize you with water. But the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
So there's a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And if you recall, whenever we were going through the series in Acts, we actually touched on this subject. We find this subject in Acts 18, starting in verse 24. If you guys recall, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now some background story about Apollos very quickly. A native of Alexandria, Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. He went to study in Alexandria. Alexandria had arguably the largest library in the world at that time. He had access to as many texts as he wanted to. He was very learned. And then, after he leaves Alexandria, he goes to Ephesus. Continuing on, he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. So he spoke rightly about Jesus, but only knew of the baptism of John. Continuing on. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who were through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So, in this particular text, we see that there is a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. That Priscilla and Aquila heard what Apollo was saying, Apollos was saying, and saying, Hey, I like what you're saying about the gospel, but the baptism part isn't right. So, praise the Lord that Apollos is uh, humble enough to receive instruction from Priscilla and Aquila. So, what does it mean to be more complete? Well, we discussed it whenever we went through Acts, but I wanted to showcase that there's a difference between the two. And this difference is this. You guys see this bowl? It is filled with water. What do we use water for? Bathing, cooking. But can this water penetrate my heart? Or my spirit at all? No. It can clean my flesh. It's a temporary cleansing. You know, I can come before the Lord for a time and say, Man, I'm really sorry that I did that thing. Can you resolve me of this guilt? And you come before me and just get dipped in the water. But your heart doesn't change. You still go back and do the same thing over and over again. So you're like, I'll just go get baptized again. And again, but nothing's changing. Why? It's the inside that needs to change. There's something greater that needs to change. This could absolve of us of, of some dirt. But there's something more effectual, more eternal, more life-giving than water. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There's a difference between the two. So we're going to read in Matthew 23... 25 through 26. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees at the time. He's with his disciples. And the, the Pharisees come before the or Jesus and say, Why do your disciples not follow the cleansing laws and wash themselves before doing these things? And this is what Jesus had to say to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So immediately we're like, oh yeah, see you Pharisees, you didn't doing stuff wrong, you thinking you're right. 
But listen to what Jesus continues to say. You blind Pharisee, first clean what? The inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So we're going to talk about what it is the baptism of Jesus is and why is it that he's the only one who can cleanse the inside of the cup. Because this only goes so far. And if you received a sprinkling, that's definitely not enough. You should get dunked. Hey, we're going to fill this bad boy up next week. So if you guys need to come before the Lord and get baptized, we'll just start a whole row of you guys and we'll start dunking you all. It's a wonderful thing. So, how does one clean the inside? Can I take this water and drink it for, I don't know, three months to purify my body? I mean, my, it might clean my kidneys and my liver, but it'll never affect my dead heart. It'll never affect the spirit that needs to change. So how does one clean the cup? Can we do that? The easy answer is no. We cannot cleanse ourselves of death and sin. That requires, that requires a magnitude of power, sovereign power, God power, to be able to cleanse it. There's nothing we can do to cleanse that ourselves. This is the necessity of the baptism of Jesus. By the Holy Spirit and fire. There is a necessity that we come before Jesus needing to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And with fire. These are going to be two topics that are extremely controversial. And you can't say that Pastor Blake and I skip over the hard stuff, because we don't. We're going to dive in and we're going to talk about it today. Let's learn about what it says in John 4. John 4, verse 23 and 24. This is what Jesus had to say. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, there are a few camps out there of Christendom that swing on the pendulum side on the extremes of each of those. There is one side that swings all the way and says, hey, we worship Him in spirit, and they kind of forget the truth portion. It's very emotional, very esoteric, very experiential. You go there not to hear the Bible preached, but you go there to have some sort of experience. And you kind of get you know, addicted to that experience. You're like, all right, all right, preacher, stop preaching. Let's get to the worship part. Just so that way we can get that experience again. They misuse words like drunk on the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit, and being flooded by the Spirit, and that the Spirit of God falls, which He does. It does. He does. But they misuse it. They swung so far on this side that they forgot to figure out or understand the truth of why that is a necessity. And then there's the other side, who swung so far to the truth side that they're like, no, that spirit stuff is not real. That spirit stuff is of the devil. And do you guys realize that the only scripture in the New Testament that says you cannot be forgiven of a sin is what? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I urge you and warn you, if you start using words like, that is of the devil, you are mirroring the same thing that the Pharisees were actually saying about Jesus' works. They actually said it was of the devil. And Jesus rebuttaled them and said, hey, you can blaspheme the Son. 
and be forgiven. You cannot blaspheme the Spirit and be forgiven. So they have swung so far this way that they've locked everything into understanding here. But this has gone, gone astray. It's gone cold. They don't care about people. It's me and mine. I'm going to protect this. I'm going to protect that. I'm going to fight anybody who comes to try to take this from me. They've forgotten the spirit side. So we're going to talk about some extremes today. We're going to talk about and go through the scriptures extensively so you can digest everything that's being said and understand the necessity of both of them. Understand what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and also what it means in the scriptures regarding the fire of God. So you can know for sure that Pastor Blaker are not ones to shy away from hard text or skip over them. So here we are and we're going to talk about it. Number one, number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The word says this, that God's word, the scriptures are God breathed, theonustros. And that they are good for teaching, for reproof and correction. So guess what we're doing today? We're doing some teaching and correction today. So we're going to need to understand some things. We need to understand what it is that we, what has happened to us whenever we've come before Jesus Christ. And also understand why it is that we should desire such a thing. So we're going to ask two questions regarding this topic. One, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And two, is it different from the moment of salvation? Is it different than the moment from the moment of salvation? We're going to be taking a look at a doctrinal statement by a Pentecostal church. That is a found, they call it a foundational truth. Um, that states regarding both of these topics. And they're good questions to ask. Because Jesus said he's going to do it. Or John said that Jesus is going to come and baptize the people of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? But also, is this something different? Is that something different from salvation? So those are the two questions we're going to deal with this morning. First, we're going to dive into Luke 24. Luke 24, starting in verse 44. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And the reason I'm, we're going to this direction is to showcase what it is that Jesus tells his disciples before the day of Pentecost. He lets them know who they're going to be and what to wait for. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. With power from on high. So Jesus is sitting with his disciples before Pentecost. Before he goes to the cross, he lets them know, hey, you guys are going to be the very witnesses of what's about to happen. And then by that, you will be a witness for me, starting in Jerusalem to the ends of there to the nations. But you must stay in Jerusalem because something is coming. The promise of the Father is coming. So what is that promise? Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, Jesus reminds them again. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Absolutely true. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus reminds them at the beginning of Acts, he reminds them before he ascends of this very thing. So let's find out what happens. The disciples waited, Acts 2. The disciples waited in Jerusalem. They waited in the upper room, just as that they were told. And this is what happened. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, or each one of them. Rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I want you to understand something that this precursor, this use of this text is utilized a lot to try to articulate that salvation means you've got to speak in other tongues. We're going to see a foundational statement that states that very thing. They say that. But what was the purpose of the tongues of fire? What does Peter do right after they received the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus say they were going to be? His witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and all the nations. So why tongues of fire? The very first thing that Peter does after receiving the Spirit is goes and preaches the good news. Do you want to know why the term tongues of fire is used there? Tongues of fire is the representation of the ability to preach the gospel directly to the hearts of men to set them ablaze. Do you have that power? No. Does Christ have that power? Yes. You are only to be a witness of it. You are only to talk about the gospel. You speaking to your friend about the gospel and all of a sudden they come alive and confess faith in Jesus Christ sets the heart ablaze. They have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and with fire. Tongues of fire is the representation that whenever you speak the gospel as a witness of Christ, you can set the hearts ablaze, not you, but the power of Christ through the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, the declaring of the gospel, being a witness of the gospel. Tongues of fire. So let's go through a couple of truths, some misunderstandings regarding this topic. Number one, it's going to be in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to read this to you, and then we'll go through the text together. This particular position states this, All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire, according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. To that we say, all right, yes, that's exactly what Luke says. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. 
With it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts of their uses in the work of the ministry. To that we also say, Amen. The Spirit comes upon us, regenerates us to make us witnesses to go and do and preach the gospel, to be a light to the nations. So we're like, all right, that's, that's good. This is where it takes a derail. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. They are saying that your salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is two separate things. That they're not the same. That you must go through some process of emotionalism and all this atmospheric type thing to receive the second portion over here. You may have been a Christian your entire life, but you're being told that, oh, you can't be because you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Wait, what? That is something different? We're going to go through the text that they use and showcase how those particular texts actually prove the very thing that, that they're trying to say. It doesn't prove them at all. It actually disproves what they say. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 12. One of the most famous ones that they use, starting in 1 Corinthians verse 12. Starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Drink of one spirit. Now, let me ask you guys a question. I'm sure that you could observe from that text alone that the reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in that conjunction is for the unity of the body of Christ. Can we not agree with that? It's straightforward. That you are no longer a Greek or a Jew, but you are one in Christ. That there are many members of Christ's body, but you're all one. That So the uses that they use here is basically unity. That the Spirit actually brings you together. The very reason that we are able to gather together no matter what we are is because of the Spirit. And Paul has rightly said so. Amen. So let's go on to the next text. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. That sounds like unity language again. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Individually members of it. So Paul is making an argument that you are one body in Christ. You are not individuals in regards to your own autonomy regarding your race, background, whatever. That in Christ you are all one. So absolutely. So let's look, take a look at another example in Acts 8. So that first example is regarding the unity of Christ. Let's go to Acts 8. This one's used quite frequently. But there was a man, and if you guys know the story, there's a man, Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He's, this guy's puffed up. <laughs> I'm a great person. If somebody's saying that to you, that's like immediately, like, no, you're not. Number, I'm sorry, verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. That means they received the gospel. They were baptized. Verse 13, Even Simon himself believed. 
And after being baptized, he continued with, with Philip. So guess what? Here we go, Simon. He got dunked. Let's continue on. And seeing in signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So Peter and John coming from Jerusalem to confirm that the Gentiles and these people actually received the Spirit after baptism. Verse 15, Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Was Simon baptized? Did he believe? Let's continue on. Saying, give me this power also, so that, <laughs> so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This guy is graded in his own eyes, I tell you. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. How many churches are out there creating experiences and getting very wealthy off of it, saying you can receive the Holy Spirit because of their experience? They're magicians. Verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Was Simon dunked? Did they say that he believed? What didn't change? His heart. This didn't do anything for him. There was another necessity, not a separate event. His heart was never changed to begin with. He needed to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not water. Continuing on, Acts 11. Acts 11, starting in verse 12. This is the point when Peter goes to Cornelius. Peter was told by the Lord to go and visit Cornelius, uh, Gentiles, and then he has the dream, as you guys probably know, that the sheet came down and had the unclean animals on it. The Lord says, rise and go eat. And he goes, oh, no, not me, Lord. I'm not going to eat anything. This, nothing unclean has touched my lips. Bro, you speak unclean things. So like he says, Lord, I'm not going to do it. And he says, do not say what I've called clean, common, or unclean. I just wish the ESV would have just said unclean. It makes more sense. Don't call that which I've called clean, common. And so he goes, rise and go to Cornelius. So here we are. Peter's going to Cornelius. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, that six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. So what happened? Their hearts were changed at the preaching of the gospel. Let's continue on. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell, fell silent 
And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted what? Repentance that leads to life. The evidence that the gospel was received was the Spirit came and fell upon them. That their hearts had changed. They had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, not just with water. They weren't simply saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian now. Their life changed. Everything changed. And them coming to the water now meant so much more because they're like, you know what? I want to declare to everybody that this has been made real. That the Holy Spirit has baptized me and with fire. So now I'm going to showcase this to everyone. It is a bearing fruit with repentance. It's baptism, water baptism. Let's continue on. So, of course, Peter tells of this story. Guess what the Jerusalem council says? All right, you need to come before us and make a witness regarding these Gentiles that you so say have received the Spirit. So Peter goes before the Jerusalem council. And this is where we pick up. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the words of the gospel and believe. Hey, tongues of fire, how about that? Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. What was Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians? That there's no distinction here? This is not just a Jewish thing? That we're all one body in Christ? Seems pretty unanimous to me. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Did it say cleanse their skin, cleanse their water, or cleanse their, their flesh? No, cleanse their hearts by faith. Cleanse their hearts by faith. So, what is... Uh, Peter is, is, is presenting to the Jerusalem council is that we now know that the gospel is effectual in the Gentiles' lives because they received the Holy Spirit to new life. To new life. This happened before they were baptized. We're going to continue on. We'll show you. Continuing on, uh, Acts. I'm sorry. Yep, Acts 15, Acts 15, starting in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. I already read this, so let's continue on. My apologies. Luke 3. There's a lot of text on here. Luke 3. So what did, what did, whenever John said, bear fruit in the keeping with repentance, what did he mean? He needs prove it. Prove it. So let me ask you guys a question. How can anybody prove what is happening internal? In the early church, they were called signs and wonders. To make absolutely sure to the apostles that something is going on, that the Holy Spirit is given to them, as promised in Joel 2, and what we're going to see in Malachi 3, that the promise was fulfilled. How would they know that? Signs, wonders, speaking in tongues, gifts. So now the apostles are like, this is sure, this is sure, this is sure. And then Paul mirrors that same sentiment. That this is true. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is true as it unifies all. There's no distinction anymore. So, what is the point 
of the baptism of the Holy Spirit to regenerate to new life. This cannot touch the heart. This cannot touch your dead spirit. But the Holy Spirit can. He can regenerate you. He is the life giver. He's the one who's given by Christ so that way you can have eternal life. So let's go on to the next portion. What about signs, Freddie? What about this thing? What about this, the signs and the desire of seeking it afterwards? This is what the statement says. Evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of believers in the Holy Ghost is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance, Acts 2.4, which we saw. Tongues of fire. What did we establish? What was the tongues of fire for? What was the purpose of the disciples for? That when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they would become what? Witnesses. So when the tongues of fire came upon them, they became witnesses. Let's continue on. The speaking in tongues is, uh, in this instance, is the same in the essence of the gifts of tongues, is what they say, but different in purpose and use. So here are the texts. Let's go back to them. This is Paul's presentation, continuing on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, and neither do I. You know that you were pagans who were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. So we're talking about evidence here. And so that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What is Paul saying here? That the evidence that the, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit is your confession that Jesus is Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but in the same Lord. And there is a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these were empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So this is the precursor of Paul presenting the gifts of the Spirit. How are we supposed to know as a church if the baptism of the Spirit has happened in the early church? Well, gifts are showcased. Speaking in other tongues, prophesying, doing all these things lets the apostles know that the gospel is at work here. That the gospel is being received here, saving people here, and doing his work to get the church started. So each one of these things are given, but one spirit. The whole point is unity. Let's continue on. Paul continues on at the very end, because he's making an argument here. He's not simply presenting all these gifts to be like, hey, guess what? You get to choose from this, that, or the other what you're going to receive, and you're supposed to desire this one over the other one. No. No. That's what was going on at Corinth. 
Corinth was like, oh man, that prophecy stuff is really cool. I want that. Or that speaking in other tongues is really cool. I want that. Or this thing, this wisdom thing is really cool. I want that. So Corinth was wanting all this things and they were desiring it. Lord, make this thing happen that I could do what they're doing. Paul says, you're absolutely right. Same spirit gives it out as evidence. But listen to how he finishes it. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. James 3, 1. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. So he's like, all right, look, everybody doesn't get all the same stuff. Desire the higher gifts. What does he say? And I will show you still a more excellent way. This is said right before chapter 13. Let's go right into it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. What is the argument Paul is making here? He's saying you're seeking after these spiritual gifts as evidence that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. The higher gifts are going to produce exactly what you're looking for. And he goes into it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not Envy does not boast. And then he concludes all of the love portion with these things. He goes, faith, hope, and love exist, but the greatest of these is love. So do you want evidence in your life that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit through the receiving of faith of the gospel? Is love present? 1 John 4. If you do not love like Christ loves, He's not in you. Why is the topic of love so heavy? Because that is the actual evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You once loved, and this happens in all of them, you once loved the world, you once loved the passions of your flesh, but now you do this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, whatever. It's fruits of the Spirit. This is what you once were. This is who you are now. Do you want evidence in your life that the baptism of the Holy Spirit has happened? Look at the two and say, yeah, that's happened. It's not the desiring of some special gift. You don't need to be set assurance of your salvation just because you don't utter a foreign language. Have ever, any of you been taught that? Have any of you gone to a church that says, hey, your salvation is not good enough. Come up here and let us baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Let's create an atmosphere so that way you can know for sure that you're saved. And they'll press on you and push on you and speak into you and be like, oh, this, that, and the other. The fire of God, fire of God, fire of God. And what are you supposed to do? You don't know what you're going to do. A child sees that and goes, whoa. An adult experiences that and doesn't know what to do. They're being pressured by these prayer people and they're being pressured by the pastor. Do this, do this, do this, do this. What are you supposed to do? 
That is not truth. Your salvation does not hinge on whether or not you can speak in a foreign language or not. It is beneficial. Paul says it. But that is not the point. The Spirit gives utterance where He needs to. But that's not the evidence of your salvation. Love is. So the answers. Oh, Acts 10. Acts 10. Let's finish up with Acts. Let's finish up with what Luke is talking about with Peter. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Okay, that's unity. Thank you, Luke. But in every nation, um, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. The term there is appeasement. But it's a sacrificial word. Verse 36, As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, he, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. What is Peter doing again? He's witnessing. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witnesses, and everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Tongues of fire. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And we commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they asked Him to remain for some days. What happened? What happened first? The reception of the gospel means filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you get baptized. Bearing fruit in repentance, just like John the Baptist said. Answers. Here's the answers to our questions. Number one, baptism of the Holy Spirit is the removal of death to new, to new eternal life, a new creation. You are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You cannot save yourself. John 3, you must be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asked, can a man go back into his mother's womb a second time? Absolutely not. So is one who born of the Spirit. It comes and goes. You must be born of the Spirit. Do you know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is? It's your life. It is your eternal life. It is your seal. A new creation. Number two. It is one and the same with the moment of saving faith. One and the same, not different. You may experience something later on in your life that may be different. That doesn't mean it's different. You may be called of God to go to ministry to be a witness in Ethiopia or 
you know, Tanzania. Or maybe just the villages here in Alaska. You may experience things in your life. That doesn't mean that's a separate event. Your baptism of the Holy Spirit secures you and seals you for all eternity in Christ Jesus. Number two, the fire gate. The fire gate. It says that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what does that mean? We're going to go and we're going to explore what it means. What does eternal life have to do with fire? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? For he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. What has happened we're seeing here in Psalm that the Lord has established His power and control, His governance over His creation, that He has created all things. So why in the middle of it would they ask the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Or the other texts say, who can ascend the mountain of God? This question is, is right. You and I cannot ascend to God. If we were to stand before a holy God, we'd be obliterated because of our sin. So who can ascend for us? Who's going to give an account? Let's go to Genesis 3. Where did it all happen? Why is this here? Genesis 3. We're talking about the fall here from the very beginning, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What was God's concern in this moment? That humanity would be stuck, eternally cursed, in their sin, in the garden. No redemption can be made at that point. So the Lord does what? Continuing on. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. God had placed an an absolute eternal assurance that mankind cannot ascend to the garden once again in their sinful state to take of that tree. He placed a cherubim there with a flaming sword that anybody would approach who was not worthy were cut down in holiness. Mankind sought to ascend the hill of God, the mountain of God, since the very beginning, Tower of Babel. We sought to enter the garden once again on our own, but we cannot. So the question was asked, well then who? Who can do this? How are we supposed to get back there? Let's read Jesus' words in John 10. This is the parable of the Good Shepherd. Once we read through this, your perspective of this parable is going to change. Listen to the words. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way is a thief and a robber. Who is the thief and the robber who came in another way? 
the serpent. He came in another way to steal and to rob. Continuing on. But he who opens by the door, he he, who enters by the door, is the shepherd of the sheep. He goes in and out of the gate. To him the gatekeeper opens. Who's the gatekeeper? The father. The sheep hear his voice. And he, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Your enemy, the devil, walks around like a what? Roaring lion, seeking to devour you. The figure of speech of Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he continues on. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, what does he say? I am the door of the sheep. He is the way in. He is the way back into the sheepfold that God created. You want to get back into the garden? He's the door. But He's not just the door. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Who's the thief? The serpent, the devil. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Oh, man. Sounds about right. Because you and I, before Christ, we were cut off from the garden. We had no access to the tree of life anymore. We couldn't ascend the mountain of God. But Jesus says, guess what? I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, that's the priests in in the Levitical system, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. What does Israel do? That very thing. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Gentiles, praise the Lord. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What What in the world was Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 12? Unity. For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not words of one who is possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem as winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What did he just do? 
He plainly told them. Jesus said, I told you, and you did not believe. That works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? You cannot lose your salvation. If you are Christ, He has got you for eternity. If I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That means, guess what, Christian? When you and I go back to covenant, eternal relationship, eternal kingdom of God, there's no serpent that's going to come back to get you. There's nothing that's going to take it away from you anymore. Praise be to God in Christ Jesus that we have a good shepherd who is the shepherd and the door. He ascended the mountain of God in death. And he stood before God, righteous and holy. He was the able to open the gate. He was able to go back to the garden and say, Come, my sheep, you may come and feast of the tree of life now. Because of one thing. The fire of sacrifice. The fire of sacrifice. Number three, the fire of sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We say it often. This is who you are, Christian. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That means incorruptible and without blemish. Incorruptible and appeased. The acceptable portion we'll find out here in a moment. To God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We talk about this verse a lot, that you are a living sacrifice, that you walk before Him, giving of your all to God in Christ Jesus. That is your spiritual worship. But there is a lot more to this verse than meets the eye, than simply just saying that this is how you're supposed to live. And the two words that mean the portion, that mean the most in this portion is holy and acceptable. This is where it comes from. First Chronicles, first starting in verse 21. First Chronicles 21. Now the angel of the Lord. So God has come, to, he's, he's promised that a curse was going to come upon the people. That they had been doing wicked things and that he was going to come and judge them. Verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He was separating the chaff from the wheat. Hmm. I wonder how this is going to play out here in a moment. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons were with him, hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. As David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build an altar of the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague might be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, listen, take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. 
See, I have given the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price and I will not take for the Lord what is yours nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site, which is a substantial amount. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. What? What? Where did the fire come from? Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. The Lord was appeased at the offering. He was pleased at the offering. So in the Old Testament, whenever the Lord would come and consume an offering by fire, that means the Lord was pleased with the offering. We could, go on, we could have gone through the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord's wrath was appeased at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That word there, appeased. Or we could have gone to Elijah's when Elijah did all the stuff to put all the things on the, to, on the altar to make sure absolutely sure that there was nothing magical that could happen. And then Elijah prays, Answer me, O God. Answer me that they may see that you are Lord. So the Lord comes down and consumes everything. He was appeased at the offering. With that being said, let's go to Second Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon filled... His prayer, I'm sorry, finished his prayer. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. So God was pleased. Consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw that fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So what is going on with the fire of God? Appeasement and glory filling a temple. What are we called? A living sacrifice? That we present ourselves forward? And what, is, what does Jesus say will happen whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you? That they will dwell within you? You are both the sacrifice and the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. The fire of God is God coming and purifying acceptable sacrifice and filling you with His glory and making His presence known there. Presence there. But there's another fire that I want us to be assured of, Revelation 20. And if you come back this evening, Pastor Blake is going to be diving into this chapter. Let's read what happens at the very end. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur of the, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why is that? Because the wrath of God is not appeased at sin. It'll be eternally burning. That's how he feels about it. So Christ's offering had to be eternally sufficient for us. That for all of eternity, that we had to stand before God righteous and cleansed and justified. That we come before the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable for all of eternity. But there is going to be those who are going to be cast into the unquenchable fire. Now you see why it's absolutely imperative that we share with tongues of fire the gospel. Because fire is either going to come upon you and change you from death into life, or death is going to produce eternal life in fire that's unquenched. So you are either baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire, or you enter the unquenchable fire of judgment. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 3, 9. And then we'll be closing. What does Peter say regarding this very thing? This very topic. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's what? Imperishable. Undefiled. And unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Are you in the lake? No. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did we not just read what happened in the last time? That we're going to see the destruction of the one who caused our destruction for eternity? The Bible says that we will be able to see this for all of eternity. To be reminded of the unquenchable judgment upon sin. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not, know, uh, do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who ascended the mountain of God? Who could endure the fire? Jesus did. He endured it so that we're not judged by it. We're actually cleansed by it. Do you know what's beautiful about the term living sacrifice? Most sacrifices that are placed upon the altar are what? Dead and consumed. The fire that you are baptized in, you come out of. You're living because Christ came through it. He's the door and the shepherd that you may enter again the garden for all of eternity. So in conclusion, there are three things I want us to walk away with. 
1. Baptism of the Holy Spirit comes from Christ, who gives it to those who believe by faith. It is not a separate event to ensure your salvation. This comes from John 14, verse 15 through 21. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father that he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, and you will also live. In the day that you know that I am in, your, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What is the higher thing of desire? 1 Corinthians 13, love. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. May the glory of God fall in your life and be evident. Manifest myself with him. Christ is the one who sends the Spirit. Not some fired up preacher. Number two. Christ crossed the fiery guard into the garden and lives so that you may have access to the tree of life. You can go in and eat. And that is eternal life. He is the door and the good shepherd. He is both the way, the truth, and the life. How fascinating. Number three. You are to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, not consumed to death as there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but living as holy, acceptable, and refined by God. Malachi 2.17, and we'll close. This text finds itself right where we're at. Starting in 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, Have we wearied Him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? They prayed for 400 years, that very thing. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will do what? Prepare the way before me. This is a fulfillment of John the Baptist. Let's continue on. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Jesus. But who can endure the day of his coming? And you can stand when he appears. You and I can't. We'd be consumed. For he is like what? A refiner's fire. And like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be, what? Pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. You are a living sacrifice. You are not consumed by the fire. You're refined by it. We should be seeking the fire of God to fall upon us. To bring forward to the altar all of our flesh and our mess and our sin and our guilt and all this stuff that seeks to attach itself. Our flesh just... 
and say, the fire of God come and consume all that is not me, conforming to the image of Christ. But you're not going to be consumed to death, but living, because Christ came through the fire that you may have life. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the fire of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a good Father. You have sent the Good Shepherd, Your Son, to be the door and the gate that we may enter, that we can stand before the unquenchable fire and live, that we can stand before the glory of the Lord because we are filled with the glory of the Lord and the Holy Spirit as sealing us for all of eternity. The Son has given it to those who believe. He calls our name and we are saved. Thank you that we are sealed for eternity and that we could step upon the altar as a living sacrifice, not consumed, but refined. That our faith is like gold and silver, that through trials, the trials of fire, you are refining us over and over again. That we are refined, that we may become more and more like you. That we come before you as a living sacrifice saying, remove from me the things that do not glorify you. And we are consumed and cleansed. So Lord, may our hearts yearn for you. May we love you like we ought to. May the evidence of our salvation, regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit be produced in our lives that is love. Love for God and love for others. That we are patient and that we are kind and that we are gentle. Show us our Show us, by the works of the Holy Spirit, the love that you have dwelled inside of us. May the fire of God fall upon us and purify us every single day that we walk as a living sacrifice, no longer clinging to that which is flesh, but walk holy and acceptable to you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.